talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. On June 1st, at McMaster University, Roberta Bondar is making a return for a speaking engagement. I think most people listening recall her connection to the school. She is an alumnus, an alumna of McMaster University. I'll have to get my Latin correct. Uh, but she is well known for her connection to the school. She is also well known for her connection to space and science and a lot of other things. And she will be returning uh, for a free event, as I say, on June the 1st. The event is being organized by Professor Gail Kratzberg, who now joins me from the professor with the Walter G. Booth School of Engineering Practice and Technology. Uh, he joins me now. Thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, uh, you know, every time I hear Roberta Bondar's name, I certainly know who she is. I think many people listening, most people listening know who she is. But it has been 30 years. I couldn't believe that it's been 30 years now since she was up in space on the space shuttle. It's a long time ago. Most of your students probably weren't alive when she was in space. So <laughs> do your students know who Roberta Bondar is? Well, some of them do, but my students come from all over the world, so they don't necessarily recognize the Canadian icon, the rare star that Dr. Bondar is. Does that matter? When, when you bring someone in, I mean, name helps, but does it matter? Or as soon as she says, oh, yeah, by the way, I spent time up in the Universal Space Station, International Space Station, and I was in the space shuttle and all the rest. It, does it really matter at that point? Absolutely not. The students in, in Booth School and all across campus are supercharged. They understand she's the first neurologist ever in space and the first Canadian woman in space. And she's seen the Earth from outer space and her perspectives um, her visual perspectives of the natural habitats on earth lead her to passion around environmental education and stewardship. And many of the students around campus and our, our youth right now are concerned very much about, about our planet and, and how we are treating it. And she's one heck of an inspiration hmm. in giving people new ideas and thinking about the extraordinary things that we could do if we use our imaginations. You know, and when I say 30 years, in a lot of, for a lot of people in a lot of lines of work, if you said that their greatest moment, I don't know if it's her greatest moment, it's certainly her most public and most celebrated moment, but if you said your greatest moment was 30 years ago, people would say, well, you know, a lot has changed since then. I'm not sure that when you're, as you say, looking at the earth from that perspective, that a whole lot has changed. That, that, those thoughts, those opinions, those observations, they, they'd be pretty similar still. Well, that may be true, but let's think about Dr. Bondar beyond the 30-year-ago year trip to outer space, which was remarkable. She's a medical doctor. She's got a specialty in neurology. She was the first neurologist to do experiments in space, uh, and she's advanced that medicine uh, over the last 30 years and education for youth through her, for her foundation. She's a professional nature photographer, and, and the storytelling that she does in terms of how the world around us can be perceived in new ways is always new and always challenging and always refreshing. She brings a new perspective and challenges to everybody all the time. So that accomplishment 30 years ago made her mark in Canada, but she's done so much since then that continues to influence people's lives that it's, uh, again, it's an inspiration to have her. And I know that the uh, youth who come to this event will be changed forever. One of the things she did also through her career, uh, and I, I hate to keep going back after you've just given that answer, I hate to keep going back, but one of the things she really did was she showed, I think, some girls even back then and since then, uh, that STEM courses and STEM study was very attainable for them. That seems to be a, a fight that's still going on today to convince a lot of girls that that's something they can do and, they, and a field they can go into. That's very true. Um, so she is a complete, completely in, in impactful role model for women. Uh, you know, live, living through the engineering faculty in the, in the last 15 years since I've been at McMaster, we really are sadly underrepresented by women. And women are told at an early age, well, it's not for you. And, and a lot of women say, well, but Dr. Bondar did it. I mean, you think about some of the, the icons all around the woman, all around the world who are women scientists, women doctors, women astronauts. It tells you that you can think about the unthinkable and make it happen for yourself. Are girls still told that, do you think? Is that a common thing still, even in 2022, that girls are being told it's not for you? I can't, I'm not an 
and I can't speak authoritatively on that, but when you when you look at the literature, you do see that women tend to move more towards um, uh, different types of, of careers. And you see, this is terrible, you see more women looking towards caretaking and nursing rather than doctoring and, um, you know, uh, being a biologist, well, I'm a scientist by training, so and I, think, I think biology is fa- fascinating, and, and B- Dr. Bonder has degrees in biology. But go beyond that and, and think about how science can change the world, how we can, we can develop policies for the future that are based on sound science. And if you want to make the world a better place, which many women do, understanding the sound science and engineering and technology that we can implement to make policies to make the world a better place, cliche or not, um, I think that's I think that's a message that is getting out to women, but there still is that notion that you know science, technology, engineering that's a man's world. So it's still it's an ongoing uh, educational battle to en- enable young women to see themselves in those places and and bring Dr. Bonda to a university is a perfect way to do that. Hmm. Especially a university, as I say, that she's quite familiar with, uh, very yes. familiar with. Her presentation, now I don't know if you asked for this presentation as a title or if this is what she came with. The presentation is titled Perspective Shift, Moving Beyond the Familiar to Reach for the Extraordinary. Yes. What? what yes. You, now she's going to say what she's going to say, but what do you take from that? So yes, you're quite correct. She sent me uh, four or five different topics that she could speak of, and this one really caught my imagination. Uh, we need to think, we need to challenge ourselves to reach, to to do things that we never imagined that we could do. We need to break down the box and, 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 and think about new ways of solving societal problems. The societal problems are so complex right now in a, in a global, global economy and, and trade and war and all those things. So by thinking about, well, we're familiar with this, but now let's think of new paradigms for doing things differently. And so when I saw the title, I thought about, you know, how do you reach for the extraordinary? How does how does she convince youth to think big and bold and challenge themselves in the face of uncertainty? So that's what I take away from it. Um, the extraordinary for her is a, a place that is safe for humans and nature integrated together. And, and I think that's an important message today that we sometimes don't think about when we're faced with other crises that are immediate. These are long-term visions for a career of chasing what's fantastic and what people can do that's creative and innovative. It is June the 1st. It's 10 o'clock in the morning at the L.R. Wilson Hall at McMaster. It is free. Uh, Very quickly, are there tickets still available? It is complete. It is free. So when I say sold out, it means we've we've released all the tickets possible. But we do know that some things come up in people's lives and they may not be able to make it. And I'm encouraging people to please come early, put your name on the waiting list. And when there are seats available, more people will get in than the tickets we've sold to date. So it is full, but I think there's always Uh, people who will make their places available. Professor Gail Kranzberg, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for this. You're very welcome. ABBA is, but yes, the band ABBA is back. Now we need to qualify this a little bit. They are playing concerts, but they're not really playing concerts, which is very confusing. There are digital versions of the ABBAites who are playing in a concert in London. Little emoji, no, not little emojis, emoji. It's it's all make-believe, but it's real, but it's not. But uh, Let me bring in Alan Cross. He is the guy behind a journal of musical things. He is Canada's preeminent music writer and critic. And Alan, uh, I'm I'm looking at this and I'm trying to think, is this brilliant or is this like the last thing we want our favorite artists to be doing? I can't decide. No, I think it's actually rather brilliant. What they did was they went into a studio for a month. They donned motion capture suits. They worked with a choreographer. They worked out a whole bunch of moves and all these moves were recorded in a computer using technology developed by George Lucas's inter, inter, um, uh, Industrial Light and Magic. And what they have been able to do is, is create these, these avatars that basically look like ABBA as they were in 1979 or so. And uh, the early reviews say that this production is 
absolutely stunning. You can't really tell that you're looking at um, a reasonable facsimile of a group that existed more than 40 years ago. Yeah, BBC's website, uh, their music critic says, ABBA Voyage, the band's virtual concert needs to be seen to be believed. And it is quite a, uh, and there's others, but it's quite a, exactly what you're saying, a glowing recommendation for this. Um, so, I mean, I, I ultimately then with what they've come up with here and the idea behind what they're doing, any artist, theoretically, if they decide to get the idea now, could get a whole bunch of hours of film of them shot doing this kind of thing, put it into a computer somewhere, and I guess, theoretically, they could perform ad infinitum until the end of time. You could just keep coming up with new concerts and keep the money flowing. Theoretically. Now, this is some very, very expensive, very, very complicated technology right now. They actually had to build a special purpose theater in London that holds about 3,000 people. This is the only place that uh, this this production will be staged because of all the tech that's that's required. Uh, What's interesting, too, is that nobody in the band is dead. Everybody is still alive, so they're able to, um, you know, they all attended the premiere the other night, and and, uh, if they want to go back into the studio and do more moves, well, they they can if they want, but I I don't think that's that's necessarily going to happen because they've got, I think it's 22 songs all mapped out, which is a pretty good concert. There's really not much more that they could do, um, and we'll see how long this lasts. Now, you can only, I think, stage this ABBA thing at this place in London for X number of you know months or years or whatever it is. It's going to be, it's going to be treated much like you know a West End theater production. It could run for years or it could run for months, whatever. But uh, as long as the artists are alive, you can do exactly what ABBA is doing. So that makes it rather interesting. So if you wanted to do, you know, a Paul McCartney, you wanted to do a Bob Dylan, you wanted to do a Bruce Springsteen, you, you certainly could uh, once these people decide that they don't want to actually play live for themselves anymore. So it's, it's, it's the next step um, towards virtual concerts. And look, full credit to ABBA. Well, I don't know if you're an ABBA fan or not, but full credit to ABBA. They have been as clever i don't know if that's the right word but as clever as any musical act out there in the last 20 or 25 years with how they've packaged and repackaged and you know created the stage show mama mia which led to a whole bunch of imitations from other people and billy joel had one and others i mean they've been they've been really really brilliant about how they've kept their music in the forefront and this is the latest one yeah they have and they know that there's a ton of money there there was a period of time I, I want to say it was around 2001 where they were offered a billion right. dollars right. to go to go on tour, but they said no, no, you know we've got lots of money and we we really don't want to go on tour anymore. So this is this is fantastic. Uh, they they spent a month working on the production. They went spent a couple of hours going to the premiere the other night, and now they can just sit back and count the money. Yeah, no, it, look, why go on tour for a billion? I mean, you, they may not make a billion out of this, but, you know, you don't have to do all the stuff, and you, as you say, you make a lot of dough. Now, okay, so again, I, I don't know if you're an ABBA guy, but pick whoever your favorite band is. Would you pay good money to go and watch a hologram or digital or emoji version of your favorite band, or do you say, mm, you know, that would be fine, but part of the specialness of going to a concert is being in the room with that person, the chance that something unique happens, the chance that it's live. So, you know, we don't know exactly. It's not perfect. Would you be, would you want to do this or is this not what you would want to do? It would be, <coughs> excuse me, it could be one of the things that I would do. Um, if it's a group that you're never, ever, ever going to see again. Yes, absolutely. Let's do it. If it's a you know a technological and, and entertainment curiosity, yes, absolutely. Will it take the place of, of live performances? No. I, I think there are some other things coming down the, the pike, including virtual reality and augmented reality, that uh, are, are going to come first. Again, this is a very complicated, very expensive, very labor-intensive technology that uh, is, is only going to be available to a very select few to start with. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I would. It's not. It's just going to be another form of visual entertainment, like go to a movie. I have to believe, and I, you know, I, I may be found to be wrong on this one. 
but I have to believe that the Graceland estate has already found some Elvis impersonator to do the stuff that you're talking about in the studio with the suits on and the movements and everything else and say, look, we got to get Elvis back on stage because there's money for that too. And there's others, well, you, but I got to believe it's happening. You, you bring up a very good point. Yes. Uh, if we, all we really need to do is find somebody to do the moves and the technology can uh, apply, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, they can, to be the, the, the body, you just superimpose the face. And yeah. you superimpose yeah. the, uh, the... I mean, with motion capture, the things that you can do... If we talk to anybody who's working in the video game industry right now. I'll tell you that it's pretty amazing. It's getting better and better and better with each packing month. I don't think... Yeah, we got to run. I don't think this will be the last one for sure. Um, Alan Cross, A Journal of Musical Things. Go look it up. It's a fantastic website. You'll love it. Alan, always appreciate the time. Thanks for this. You bet. Thanks. He's at the airport. He's heading off somewhere. We appreciate him jumping in. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Oh, once upon a time, the bare naked ladies were just ubiquitous. We couldn't get away and we didn't want to get away from them. They were great. They were fun. They were great songs. Be My Yoko Ono. That was Be My Yoko Ono was the song for many, many, many people that introduced us to the bare naked ladies. Now, you may have heard of Bare Naked Ladies even before that, because if you are old enough to remember, there was a, a day in Toronto when the Bare Naked Ladies were going to have a concert, and those at City Hall did not understand that Bare Naked Ladies was a tongue-in-cheek, ironic, funny name. And when the folks at City Hall heard that there were Bare Naked Ladies having a concert, it was shut down because they said, that's offensive. Well, there was no bare naked and there were no ladies. Nonetheless, Be My Yoko Ono was what was played. Remember this? At Speaker's Corner. Do you remember Speaker's Corner? Speaker's Corner was at the City TV building on Queen Street. And people could go in and I think they had to put a loony in. And you would get a minute or two minutes to do whatever the heck it was that you did. You could talk. You could gripe. You could give a speech. You could read poetry. You could... You could do whatever you want. And in the case of Bare Naked Ladies, they got in there and did an acoustic version of Be My Yoko Ono. And the amazing thing about what happened with this song and their performance on Speaker's Corner was that not only did people go, wow, that's pretty cool, but that then got put into the Much Music playlist for videos. So you had videos that were like huge production value, you know, thriller or whatever else, you know, like enormous money. And all of a sudden you've got this $1 Be My Yoko Ono video from the Bare Naked Ladies. But it all was because of Speaker's Corner. Well, Speaker's Corner under a different name is now back in Toronto. There is a new thing. It's now called hashtag SpeakTO, but it's basically the same thing. Is it going to work? Is it going to bring back the great days of Speaker's Corner? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, who is a PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you for having me on. Now, you are a very, very young woman, so you were probably not born when Speaker's Corner was a thing in Toronto, I but you've probably heard you. of it. Last somebody told you I was young, but I hate <laughs> to tell you that in the early days of City TV, I used to actually watch it, and they used to have a fill-in for about five minutes and they used to pick out the best of Speaker's Corner. And I used to sit there and watch it. So that's aging me, but I am very familiar with Speaker's Corner. Why did it work? Because it, it really did work. For a long time, it really did work. And maybe, you know, we look down 20 years, 30 years later, and we go, what a silly idea. That would never work. It did. So why did it work? It worked because there was no such thing as citizen journalism at that time. Nobody was online. You didn't really know what other people were thinking unless they came up to you and you actually had a conversation. So Speaker's Corner allowed you to vent. It allowed you to celebrate. And you were able to tell the whole world about that. I still remember, Scott, I remember when the Bare Naked Ladies all crammed into that booth. Yep, we were just talking about that, yeah. So that it was such a novelty because everybody, you know, conversations only ever happened between friends or colleagues. This was an open conversation, an open-ended conversation, because obviously you weren't able to talk back to it. But it sort of gave you the insight into what people were thinking 
about issues and or about things that were personal to them. Now, how that's going to play out now, I am a little bit frightened. Well, because, I mean, is it is it too simplistic to say that Speaker's Corner was essentially a tiny, tiny, minuscule, teeny-weeny fraction of social media before social media existed? Perfect example. That is a perfect example of what it was. A hundred percent. And it was tiny because it was a very small boost to cram into. That too. (laughs) But I mean, now you can go on. I mean, in the time that we have been talking in the last two or three minutes, there have probably been, I don't know, a hundred thousand tweets that have been filed and probably 500 YouTube videos have been uploaded around the world. And, you know, anybody can be seen doing anything at any time, whatever you want to put up there, you can, this was you could go and do it, but there was no guarantee that people were going to see you. You still had to go through some filtering and vetting process to stand out and be on there. But it was that it was the idea. It was. And I think that there, you know, let's fast forward now to 2022 and filtering and vetting becomes even more important. So if you look at a social platform, you mentioned Twitter because you talked about the number of tweets that have just passed through that platform in the time that it took us to have this conversation. Well, there has to be serious filtering. There has to be serious vetting because, as you know, there are people who hide behind their keyboards on Twitter and uh-huh. basically say what they want. Well, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. The thing about Speaker's Corner, Scott, is this. You can't hide behind your keyboard. It's your face. It's your voice. It's your thoughts. So hopefully, people will go through a, hopefully, and this is a big hope, that people will go through a self-filtering process where they will think twice about going to Speaker's Corner and venting about something that they are passionate about. Yeah, I would love the idea that people would do that and that there would be a bit of, it's not quite back to analog, but almost it seems like it's back to the analog version of social media where not everything gets dumped on us. It's, It's kind of an enticing idea. I don't know if it'll work, but it's enticing. You know, I hope it does work. And I hope that it's something, uh, you know, a medium such as this gives people a sober second thought before they go on some tirade. You know, Mm. it's easy to say something, press send and forget about it. But it's not so easy to say something, have it recorded, and for everybody and your mother and your second cousin twice to see it. It is a very, very good point. And this is why I've always thought that we should all have to identify ourselves on social media. Speaker's Corner, you did that. Again, your face was showing, your name was showing. We will see. We'll see if there can be a second life for what was once upon a time a really, really fun and cool and innovative program. Alyssa Freeman, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Now, I got to say off the top here for this segment that um, to those in London who are listening, we are sorry. We apologize. We wish that your Knights were still alive in the OHL playoffs. We wish they were still going. We would love to play against the London Knights if that championship series were to unfold. However... Not to be. Uh, this year, however, the Hamilton Bulldogs are still rolling. Today is game four against the North Bay Battalion. If they win this, they sweep their third consecutive series. They go to the championship either against Windsor or against Flint. Norm Miller is the color commentator for Bulldogs games here in town. He joins us now. Norm, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? Is that uh, How do you know to play my favorite song there at the beginning? Well, you know, we, uh, we, we tapped into your phone. We hacked in to know which one you listen to all the time. So this has become kind of an incredible ride for the Bulldogs. I, and not just the playoffs, but certainly the playoffs. 11 games, 11 wins, 21 wins in a row, 46 out of their last 50. I don't think there's ever been a team in Hamilton in any sport that's done this. But have you ever seen a team that's been on this kind of a roll? You know, that's a, that's a tough one, Scott. I mean, there's certainly been some great teams. And our listeners, uh, those folks listening in London, uh, know the Knights certainly had some, some great teams specifically during that lock, NHL lockout season when they ended up matching up, I think, against Sidney Crosby and Ramuski in the final. But this has got to be uh, pretty unprecedented. I mean, the Flyers had that big unbeaten run in the NHL back uh, when Pat Quinn was coaching, I believe it was. So, yep, Pete Peters yeah, in net 35 in a row, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that that was pretty special. But, uh, yeah, this Bulldogs team, and really it sort of kicked off. Uh, it's funny, you know, December 30th, I remember doing a game. They lost to Erie 7-2. And uh, probably one of their worst games of the season. You thought, oh boy, where's where's this going? And then they came back in January, and of course, the trades from Mason McDavish and Arbor Jacky, and 
Ryan Winterton, who hadn't played at all in the first half of the season, came back from injury, and uh, the team's just been, uh, as you know, Scott, on an incredible roll since then. All right, you mentioned a few names, uh, and I, I've I've thought since the new year that the guy who is the crux of this whole thing, the guy who is the most impactful, the one guy they can least afford to be without is Arbor Jack guy. He's a Hamilton guy. He's a big, scary defenseman. He plays 30 minutes a game. Uh, but there are other options. I mean, Mason McTavish is third overall NHL draft pick, has been amazing for the Bulldogs. Logan Morrison already has 13 goals in the playoffs in 11 games. Um, Marco Costantini, the other Hamilton guy, the goalie, has been lights out. Avery Hayes. If you had to pick at this point who for the Bulldogs your playoff MVP was, who would it be? Uh, I think it almost have to be Morrison, just uh, based on that production alone, though. I mean, certainly lots of great contributors, but Morrison from a key timely goal perspective for Hamilton is just really paced the offense the you know first round pick uh the season after Hamilton won the uh, the OHL championship and certainly uh he has been dynamite for them but this is a team that just runs as you know Scott from seeing them they run three four lines deep uh all three defense pairs are pretty solid it is a really uh this this team that just uh Jay McKee and that coaching staff are just able to roll anybody out there and have pretty good confidence that they're going to produce so it is tough to pick one but you know, I, I think Morrison certainly in that production alone has, has been a real key contributor for them. Yeah, and what is so impressive to me about what's been going on is I, I didn't think they played all that well last game, honestly, their first game in North Bay, game three of the series, and yet they still find a way to win. And, you know, it just, I look at this now, you, you may have a different take. I look at North Bay's chances of coming back in this series as about minus 47%. Like, there's no chance that a team that has lost one game in the last two months is losing four games in a row. It just it seems impossible. Yeah, I mean, they've already only lost, what, four games in regulation since uh, we flipped the calendar to 2022? Three. Right? Three in regulation and one in a play yeah, in a sh- overtime. Yeah, so it's, it's incredible. But I, I think it's uh, certainly a tall order. You know that North Bay is going to come out. They're not going to get swept in a series and certainly not get swept on home ice. It's junior hockey and anything can happen, but certainly on the form chart that we've seen so far from Hamilton uh, in the playoffs, I mean, it, it's hard to see. But And again, Scott, the four goals they gave up, you know, you just mentioned that probably one of their uh, their poorest efforts of the play, playoffs, they gave up four goals, which is the most they've given up in 11 games of playoff hockey. Like That's, that's unbelievable to see that at, at any level of hockey, let alone junior hockey. Yeah, and and the other part about this that that I'm so surprised, but not surprised. I'm I, I don't know what the word. Maybe surprised is there's been no let up. Like when this team had this first place wrapped up, they didn't suddenly have a bad game. When this team got up three nothing in a series, they haven't. They've they have been they have been the opposite of everything that Leaf fans around here dream that the Leafs would one day have, which is that absolute killer instinct. That's what these guys have had. There has been absolutely no mercy on other teams. For a year, for well, since the turn of the calendar. Yeah, and I think if you look throughout the regular season, and we touched on this already, Winterton not playing at all in the first half of the season, uh, this team has rarely had a, a you know a fully healthy lineup during the regular season. So what I think that allowed them to do is really get a lot of different players to contribute, uh, a lot of different players to play in key roles. Uh, so that's played off well in the playoffs. I, I think as well, um, you know, let, let's, also not forget, though, they missed Avery Hayes for three games for a suspension in the playoffs. They missed that guy for a game. Uh, so they've had to make adjustments. Stales didn't play the last game, Nathan Stales. So they've certainly had to make plenty of adjustments, and I think it's a real testament to the players and the coaching staff. And we mentioned this in our broadcast the other night, uh, Reed Duffy and Troy Izlikar and I on Cape 14, that you look at Jan Mishak. Here's a player who's an uh, NHL draft choice by the Montreal Canadiens. He hasn't scored a goal yet in the playoffs, yet he's still out there playing 200-foot game. He's playing both ends of the ice. He's contributing. And there's no sulk at all in the game. And, and I, I, Scott, I can't imagine that Jan Mishak has gone more than 11 games without a goal ever in any time he's played hockey. And he, there he is still out there putting in a full effort night in, night out, which shows how much this team is truly bought in. Game four tonight, 7 o'clock in North Bay. You can watch it on TV here in town on Cable 14. Norm Miller, thanks for the time today. I always appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Scott. Have a good one. Take care. If you're a Survivor watcher, and if you didn't watch the finale on Wednesday and you have it taped or PVR'd or whatever, and you're planning to watch this weekend or tonight or whatever, okay, here's the time. Leave us for about eight minutes and then come right back.
But we don't want to ruin the surprise for you because we're going to be giving some spoilers here. So is that enough time? All right, here we go. There was a final finale to Survivor on the weekend, and it turns out that a Canadian won. Not just a Canadian, a former McMaster student is the Survivor champion, Marianne Oketch. She was on the show before Survivor started. We haven't been able to get her yet. A little busy these days. But that's not the only connection to the university. There is, at McMaster, a course called Surviving Survivor, Insights from Reality TV for Real Life. The instructor is Hartley Jaffeen, who's with the Bachelor of Health Sciences program. We bring him on now. Hartley, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. So happy to be here. So I assume, I mean, I can only assume that you taught Marianne everything she knew, and therefore she owes all of this to you. I wish... I and Jen Nash, my co-instructor, <laughs> co could take credit for it. But sadly, Marianne graduated in the spring of 2020, and the course was launched the fall of 2020, so she just missed it. So how closely were you watching this year then, knowing, though, that there was a student from your university that was playing? Oh, my goodness. From the moment I saw that there was a McMaster grad on this season, already I was pulling for her. It was easy. And then when I saw her play... Every episode made it easier and easier to root for her because she was just such a fun player to watch play the season. What did she do right? Because, I mean, it's easy to find the things that anyone does wrong that either gets them kicked off or gets them in trouble. But what did she do that was right? The biggest thing that she did right was in the finale when she was pleading her case to the jury. She was really attuned to the questions that the people were asking her, figuring out what she needed to take ownership and responsibility for, what she was able to um, pass off as strategic gameplay. She was really able to own her strategy and articulate it in a very clear way that I think swayed a lot of members of the jury to say, yes, she deserves a million dollars. You know, even as we're just talking, and I, I want to get back to it, but I'm sure there are people who are listening, and as soon as I started this conversation saying, wait a second, there's a university course on Survivor at McMaster. Was like basket <laughs> weaving full or what? Like th there's got to be, what is, the, what is the part of this that makes it a university course that's not just a giant bird course that someone would take just for, you know, an easy grade? There's got to be something to it. So what is it? The main focus of the course is we use Survivor as the text to explore a lot of different academic disciplines. So we use the show to look at what is happening um, physiologically to the body when you go 26 days or 39 days without food and very little sleep. We, have, we use the show to talk about leadership, how one builds community, morals and ethics. We use the show to talk about representation of race, sex and gender. Um, so there's a lot of different academic ideas that the show really highlights and we can use as a launching point to talk about it. And then, as you mentioned, the title, Insights from Reality TV for Real Life, we're able to look at how what we see on the show can act as a microcosm of what goes on in our day-to-day -day lives off an island. All right, so the show bills itself as a social experiment. Do you think that there really are things from the show that we can apply to everyday life? Absolutely. There are certain ways in which leadership and the way you interact with other people on a tribe or in the show um, can really represent positive ways that we can interact with each other in our daily lives or, or conversations around um, what certain people are able to do uh, in the show, like certain, what certain bodies are able to do. If you're a, a male player, what can you do in the show that is perceived differently than if you're a female identified player? So I think there are a lot of things that if you look at how players play the game and look at how people exist in real life, sometimes it's almost identical. Because one of the things that I always find interesting is contestants will sometimes say, I, I will do something on the show that I wouldn't necessarily do at home in real life because, you know, I don't, I'm not someone who lies at home or deceives people at home or try to. Do you think that's true or do you think that Survivor essentially acts like a, like alcohol almost where it doesn't, it, it merely sort of loosens your inhibitions. So what you see is really what you're all about, even though you may not think that's what you're really all about. Yes, that's a, a conversation that we have in the course when we talk about morality and ethics, because certain players, like you said, approach the game as this is just a game. This is not a representation of who I am. And these actions are just me playing a game. And other players will approach it going, absolutely not. I need to hold true to my values. And the way I'm playing the game is a representation of who I am at home. And what makes the show so fascinating is that there's no wrong answer. It's just a matter of 
your own personal perspective on how you'd want to approach that game. There's no wrong answer, but if everybody did operate at home in real life the way they did on that game, because there's, I don't believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe there's a single winner who, or a person who's even moved on far in the game who hasn't lied at one time or deceived at one time. I don't think you could go on there and be entirely straightforward and survive. That's kind of a depressing view of the real world, though, that to succeed, <laughs> you have to be deceptive. Yes, and that's one, one departure from the show versus real life, because in real life, you know, people aren't actually gunning to vote you out, though you can see some parallels between the, the game and workplace dynamics, where maybe not someone's trying to get you fired, but someone is trying to do something strategic to advance themselves in a company or in an environment mm. or, or in an academic classroom. So I think there, there are some parallels. And to your point around that every winner or people who go far need to lie, certainly, yes, there are winners that need to um, commit to some people and then change that commitment later on and, and yes. effectively lie. But that is where the game operates just kind of on its own island. Well, and the, uh, the one other thing that I always find interesting when we try to apply it to real life is the, the, the one strategy that always seems to work, and it worked this time. Again, if you look at the three who are in the finals, they may have been really good at the game, but I think if you were playing Lord of the Flies and you were truly trying to survive and there wasn't a camera crew around or someone, I'm not sure that your best method of survival is always getting rid of the strongest people. And that's always the way to do this. Anyone who's good, we have to get rid of them. And it, I, maybe that's an application for life, but I think in life we want to keep good people around us rather than saying we have to eliminate them from our sphere. Absolutely. And I think the show really tries to flip the conversation of what is strong? What does that actually mean? Because certain players bring physicality that strengthens a tribe in the early game. Some players bring a strategic mind or a, a, an aptitude for puzzles, which gives them a huge strength in challenges. And so I think it's about looking at your team and, and figuring out who is helping the team in challenges and also who is helping the team in terms of keeping the team dynamics really mm. positive and, and, and working well together. We got to run. Will Marianne be invited to teach some classes next year? Oh, will she ever? If she wants it, she has a spot to join us. <laughs> that is Hartley Jaffine, one of the instructors of Surviving Survivor Insights from Reality TV for Real Life. That is a course at McMaster. And as I said, again, spoiler alert, the winner of this year's game was a Matt grad. So there you go. They, they, there will be, I'm sure there will be emails and phone calls and texts flying around asking for teaching time. We'll see if they get it. And if they do, let me know, Hartley. Uh, we got to take a break. Uh, thanks for doing this, Hartley. Really appreciate your time. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I don't know that anyone is all that excited about word that we have a new virus on the landscape. Monkeypox is now in Canada. The question is, how seriously should we be taking this, the average person around here? Because we heard today that our deputy chief medical health officer says we should exercise social distancing to avoid getting monkeypox. And I'm like, you know, good luck with that. I think people are just done with the whole social distancing thing, done with the mandates, fair or not. This is going to be a tough one. This is going to be a tough one. But is it, is it something we should be paying attention to? Because this is now something that we really need to protect ourselves from. Dr. Timothy Sly is an epidemiologist and professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health with Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson University. He joins us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Thank you, Scott. So we right now we have, as I understand it, the best I can tell, only a few cases in the country, maybe a couple hundred, if that, in Canada. Is that enough to grab our attention or should it be enough to grab our attention and start doing things to protect ourselves? Yeah, it's a couple of hundred, uh, one to two hundred in the world. It's only, I think, 26 cases okay. in Canada, one in Ontario at the moment. Yes, you're right. Um, I mean, the public health people are always looking out for something new on the horizon. And what we've got here is, is something that we've known about since the late 1950s. 
Uh, it's a rare disease, always has been a rare disease. It's still a rare disease now, but because it's a rare disease, of course, you get a couple of cases popping up here and there, and, and eyebrows go up in curiosity, and we need to f track it down and find out where it's going. Usually there's not more than a half a dozen cases that ever leave Africa because somebody has visited there and then go back to their own country. And here we've got uh, a few more than that. Uh, so we're keeping tabs on it, finger on the pulse. Uh, the epidemiology is going on right now, and once that's done, we'll know exactly how it's spreading and who it's spreading to and from and so on. We'll get much better information. The fact that now there are more, as you say, there are more cases now than usual, but not a lot of cases. So are, are we now... Is our antenna up simply because we've been in COVID and anytime someone says virus now that we are much, much more attuned to it and we're much more on our toes? If this was, if we were not coming out of COVID, would we even be talking about monkey virus right now? Or monkey yeah, I think what I, yeah, I think what you said, Scott, right at the top sort of uh, crystallizes that out and it's, uh, it's what we're all experiencing. You know, we've been through this and so our, we've been sensitized if, if that's a good word, to, uh, to new diseases coming along, uh, sometimes positively, more often negatively, I think. But uh, this isn't something to be uh, concerned about in any great way. This is not a, another wave, you know, a, another pandemic mm. following the first one. It's not even an outbreak in a sense. You've got a few isolated cases here and there scattered on the face of the earth. And, uh, well, experts track that down and find out where these people came from, where they were going to, what contacts they've had. Uh, the rest of us uh, don't have to worry a, a great deal. Uh, but keep, keep, keep your ear to the ground and let's find out what's going on. Th this is not uh, a sexually transmitted disease that nobody's ever determined that at all. It's, a, it's contact, much like Ebola is, a, is from physical contact, you know, somebody addressing wounds or somebody uh, attending to somebody who's ill or and in this case with monkeypox as well uh, and smallpox was the same way though that was probably a little more a little more infectious but what we're seeing here is that any if you remember that um, we've had a number of diseases in the past that were spread by food handlers for example supposing a food handler becomes infected with hepatitis A, for example, and they happen to work in a, a hospital kitchen, I mean, suddenly all the patients in the hospital are, are vulnerable to hepatitis A. I mean, this, can, this has happened in the past. It doesn't mean that hepatitis A is only affecting hospital patients. It just happens to be that the, the planets came together at that point, and that's hmm. where the infection took place. And the same thing is, is going to happen here with, with some kind of social event that's taken place, and then people go back to their own communities and uh, spread a little more there. And, and what you just said, though, is, is I think very important because, you know, COVID was spread how COVID was spread. We've heard everyone could probably do a thesis paper on COVID now from all we've learned over the last number of years. But this is a much more, you, you have to be near someone and in close contact for an extended period of time rather than what you were getting for COVID. It's much more difficult, it sounds like, to get monkeypox than it was to get COVID. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could be in the same room as somebody with monkeypox and you wouldn't be at all at risk unless you were you were there, you know, uh, seeing to their, their skin and their lesions and you were dressing them at the time and you didn't have much protection and then you rubbed your eye or something like that. Yeah, you, the, the, this is how it's spread around. It's not an airborne, it's not a respiratory, acute respiratory virus at all. And so we're, other, other than individual groups and contacts, uh, people are not, not going to be at risk here. And in fact, what I think may have happened here is that much like happened with the Ebola, when it first appeared, it was really deadly. It had a case fatality rate of something like about 90% in, in Zaire, which now became known as the Congo. But then, and we saw a few decades later, if you remember, in West Africa, we had an outbreak of Ebola, the largest one we'd ever seen in thousands of people. But it was milder. And I think when you get a mild version of a, of a deadly disease, people are not quite as ill and people are not quite as prostrate and they, and they decide to go back to their village, you know, in that particular case of Ebola. So the milder the disease, the more it can spread. And this might be a, a case here that if somebody in the early stages of monkeypox uh, didn't really feel ill at all, they may not even mm. have felt ill at all and gone traveling and gone back and gone to their social groups and uh, spas or wherever else they went and they were able to spread it further than the original monkeypox in the center Africa, which is more, uh, more, more of a serious disease.
Dr. Timothy Sly, uh, so much appreciate your time today. Thank you for taking a few minutes. Thanks, Scott. Anytime. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Supreme Court of Canada came up with a ruling that has already spawned some very strong reactions. It involves a guy in Quebec who shot and killed six people in a Quebec City mosque. And he had appealed the conviction, which had given him consecutive, more than one life term in a row, which meant that he would not have been eligible for parole for many, 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 many years. Well, the Supreme Court today announced, decided that that would be cruel and unusual punishment, that not to allow him the opportunity to apply for parole after 25 years. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to get parole. Let's be clear. The chances of him getting parole, I would say, is, well, it better still be pretty small or negligible. But nonetheless, the idea of it being cruel and unusual, I want to bring in Ari Goldkind, who is a Toronto defense lawyer, to talk about this. Ari, thanks for the time today. I really appreciate it. Great to be on with you, and your introduction is actually dead on perfect. You actually don't need me. You explained it so well. Well, like I, I'm struggling with what is cruel and unusual about keeping a mass murderer no question. No, no one's arguing that he didn't do it. Even at this point, there's no statement 100%. of I'm not the right guy. There's an, he, yep. he pleaded guilty to this. What is the cruel and unusual part about keeping him in jail for the rest of his life? I don't get it. So here's why I think your point is so right. As a political commentator and Canadian citizen, I think the decision is hideous. Absolutely hideous. Okay. As a criminal defense lawyer, it actually makes sense to me. So that's where the dichotomy or the problematic idea of this comes. So let me explain to your question about cruel and unusual. The Supreme Court's definition of cruel and unusual is very different than mine and probably different than many of your listeners. So you ask yourself, well, what does the Supreme Court say is cruel and unusual? It's not the conditions in jail. It's not lockdowns. It's not strip searches. What they find cruel and unusual is that a mass murderer, serial rapist, lifelong child molester should never, ever be receiving a sentence where there isn't an iota, a ray of light, uh, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for them to aim to rehabilitate themselves to, to take courses, to behave in jail. I'll get to that in a minute because it's an important part of the decision. But the cruel and unusual term seems to be what these nine Supreme Court judges think it is. But I think if you took a poll of the ordinary average Canadian in a democratic society, while the Constitution comes into play, you can't have something that's cruel and unusual, grossly disproportionate. I think there are a great many people out there that would say if you mow down 15 people in a mosque or a synagogue, or if you're Alec Manassian and you mow down 15, 16 people on Young Street, well, isn't that the kind of cruelty and unusual nature of life that we're worried about? The Supreme Court says no. And there's two parts to it, just for people to understand that the Supreme Court talks about. One, how many listeners out there can go to cable right now and watch those shows about jails in California, San Quentin, all those shows where because the inmates are serving sentences for 2,000 years, I mean that literally, by the way. Right. There's no incentive for them to behave. They stab each other. They stab guards. They've got nothing to live for. The Supreme Court talks about that. That's an important part of things. The second part, and here's the part that I have most trouble with the decision, is the whole idea of this came into play in 2011, where the Harper government, by the way, supported by the Trudeau government, let's remember that, supported by the Trudeau government, because they've never appealed this, they like this law, says, look, every life has to matter in the criminal court system. So while we leave it to the parole board, because you said in your intro, the odds of a Manassian, a Bissonnette getting out on parole are probably as good as you and me flying to the moon tonight. See Paul Bernardo for that. Yeah, yeah. That's the, the Supreme Court says, leave it to the parole board because life is still going to make life. Sorry, life is still going to mean life. And here's the question I would have said to the Supreme Court. Yeah, you're right. Life means life. The odds of them getting out are slim to none. I get that. We don't have the death penalty in Canada. You want to give people a faint hope, do so. But imagine, and you and I probably are very lucky, two men to have never been through this. 
imagine you're one of the loved ones in Manassian. Exactly. Or you're one of the loved ones in the mosque. And 22 years from now, you hear that Bissonette or Manassian are applying for parole. Your life now takes you to the Kingston Penitentiary, where you need to sit there and explain to a parole board, not that you need to do it. It's all circus. It's all theater. I hate these parole hearings. I think they're all theater. But your life, you never move past this. You never avoid the loss of the loved one. So the problem I have here is while the Supreme Court legal reasoning makes sense, I get it. It sort of ignores the dignity, to use the Supreme Court's word that they use for the murderer. Let me, yeah, Ari, let me jump... Aaron, let me jump in for a second, because you bring up another word, and I want to read, so one of the lines that was used was the this court said consecutive sentences, and this is a quote, intrinsically incompatible with human dignity because of their degrading nature. I would turn it around, though, and say, if I kill one person, I'm not going to, but if I kill one person and I get 25 years, any, any other people I kill are basically freebies, because you're not going to make my sentence anymore. That, to me removes the value of every other person's life after the first person you've killed. It means their life had no value. That, to me, is way more intrinsically incompatible with human dignity than saying you can have a longer consecutive sentence. I agree with that. So that's why, as a political commentator and citizen, I find the decision really troubling. The court is much more concerned with the rights of the offender, much more concerned about peace in the penitentiaries, and not entering into that moral uh, question about what's the life worth. I think that's actually the most important question the court should have dealt with. And here's why. You have in this, I, I think you'd agree, we live in a hyper-partisan, unbelievably tribalistic yes. society, okay? Yes. Yep. Imagine that this is a law that the Harper government, who has become Voldemort, you're actually not allowed to talk about Harper, you're going to get called a bunch of names. But the Trudeau government thinks this is a good law. The NDP government thinks this is a good law. We live in a democracy where Parliament represents the people listening to your show. That's what Canada is. It's a little bit concerning to me, even though it's unanimous, that nine Supreme Court justices come along and say, this is a step too far to keep the worst of murderers. And again, these are life sentences. This is just yep. parole in eligibility, remember? Yes. Just parole. That, that's cruel and unusual, but the people who are murdered, forget their friends and loved ones. They're sitting looking down on us from heaven, if you believe in that. Or if you don't, they're six feet under, rolling in their graves. Why don't they matter a little bit more? And here, let me end with this one quickly, because I'm sure we're Very low quickly, on time. please, yes. Yep. Yes, this was never a law where a judge had to. I emphasize this. The judge never had to give the consecutive parole and eligibility periods. This was a matter of discretion for a judge to do in the worst of the worst cases. How that offends dignity, or even a murderer's dignity, if they're going to have a harsher sentence than another murderer, I don't know. That just seems like a very bizarre ideological assumption. It is. Ari Goldkind, really appreciate the time. I wish we had more. Thank you for doing this. Pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We know, we've heard a lot of it. We know that we are facing a shortage of personal support workers in this province. It's uh, it's It's been a problem. If you have family that has been in long-term care and care anywhere, you've probably felt this to some degree or another. The issue is, what do we do about it? Yeah, because I don't think, despite all the political posturing and everything else, I'm pretty sure this is not an easy thing to resolve. I don't think it's a snap the fingers kind of resolution. I want to bring in Laura Balmer. She is chair of the Canadian Association of Continuing Care Providers, and she is a PSW researcher advocate at OPSU head office. She joins us now. Laura, thank you for this. Thank you. Why, what is your opinion? Why do you believe that we are facing this shortage right now? What a great question. There are so many reasons. There's a multitude. Uh, You know, retention and recruitment is one of them. You know, I purposely put retention first because I believe the emphasis needs to be on keeping the PSWs that we have. Recruitment in this sector is challenging because this is not a career of choice due to like low low wages, you know, lack of full-time employment, despite there being a shortage. There's no benefits for these folks, no sick pay, and all of that plays into it. We know too that this sector is mainly made up of uh, women 
um, and marginalized groups as well, including like new Canadians, which historically uh, are finding it difficult to have a voice when it comes to making changes at a political level. A lot of the things you mentioned, and understandably so, but a lot of the things you mentioned are related to pay or benefits or that kind of thing. I, I wonder... Being a PSW is not an easy job necessarily, and I, we're not going to go into the um, physiological stuff here, but some of the things that you and the workers have to do are not necessarily things that every one of us would love going to work and doing every day. There's stuff there that is challenging and difficult, and I mean, is it is it wrong to say sometimes a little bit gross? And, but we need people to do these things, and we need people to do them in a dignified way for people who need the help long way of getting around to it would simply adding more money to this do the trick or is is it the kind of job that even if it was a hundred thousand dollars a year there are a lot of people who say yeah no that that's not really my thing you know being a, a registered nurse myself healthcare is a calling i believe and i don't think that it's all about money i think that if it was then we wouldn't have the psws that are out there right now or who have helped us throughout the pandemic quite honestly when it comes to spending from government levels, I think money is a huge part of it, but it needs to be spent correctly and put in a very specific way. Uh, you know, we need to hold our politicians accountable and act more swiftly to make the changes that we need. We need inclusion at policy discussions. So that has nothing to do with money. You know, and that at all levels, we need high level regulation. These are unregulated care providers. And, and that's pretty scary because these are the pillars of our healthcare team, that the eyes and ears for nurses and the voices of the residents that they care for. So if they were to crumble, which is actually happening right now, you know, that puts patient and resident safety at risk and it's huge. Um, there's a group of us that have started a PSW champions um, alumni, I'm not sorry, not an alumni, an alliance. And, you know, our goal is to transform existing paradigms and infrastructures. We need to make sure that people know how bad this PSW crisis is and that because of it, sick and vulnerable people are dying. You mentioned early on that, um, you know, this affects all of us. And I don't think that people really realize how much we are affected by it if they haven't been in um, contact with or use the services of a PSW. We all will at some point in time. So. Uh, you know, we need to rally. We need to support the support workers who have been supporting us. You mentioned retention a moment ago. I, I was <laughs> reading something today that there are people who are coming out of PSW school. They're, they're training, getting a job, working for two or three months and then quitting. I mean, is that something that you're experiencing? For sure. One of the reasons is they're like realizing, holy smokes, this is not what I signed up for. Uh, two, you know, media and, and not particularly the radios per se, but, you know, everyone wants to have like, you know, meet McDreamy from Grey's Anatomy. And there's like kind of like, you know, this, woo, this is going to look pretty great. And so I think it can be, um, you know, students can experience a lot of moral distress when they come from the uh, classroom or the lab environment going into what real life looks like. And the reality is, too, the workers that are out there right now are very burned out and exhausted and tired. I, I don't know that you necessarily want to be, you know, firing a shot across the bow at the schools, but it almost sounds like have the schools done a not as good a job maybe as they could have expressing what real life is going to be like then, that it's a little bit, you know, that, that, that has to be more blunt about what you're going to face when you get out there? You know, that's always a hard transition, whether it be in the nursing programs or the PSW, making that transition from school to the bedside. I don't think it's a school-related thing. My background is as a professor at a downtown college, so um, I can speak very closely to that. There is no really a good way to prepare students. You, you only have the textbook, and then when they see what's going on in the real environment, and in particular now, you know, with the pandemic, and I don't even want to say post-pandemic because we are at some level still experiencing that, um, it's a lot for young people to uh, deal with and to transition into. We only have 30 seconds, so it's going to have to be a shorter okay. answer probably than is fair. But the NDP, as an example, have said that if they get elected, they were going to hire 10,000 PSWs. I'm wondering, even if they got elected, are there 10,000 PSWs waiting out there to be hired? No, it's not a career of choice. We need to make it a career of choice. So give them high level regulation, title protection, a professional association, things like that. 
it is uh, it is an issue for sure. It is something we should be paying attention to because I think Laura is absolutely right that we'll all, if we don't need it now, we will at some point. Uh, Laura Balmer from the Canadian Association of Continuing Care Providers. Thanks for the time. Oh, thank you so much. Have a great day. And you have a great weekend. Really interesting idea that Mohawk College is bringing in. Also, Algonquin College and George Brown College, they're involved as well. But they, they all have joined resources to launch a new four-year honors degree in business administration, which hmm, you would think that sounds very university-ish. Well, but there's a twist. I want to bring in Sylvia Lowndes. She is dean of the McKeel School of Business at Mohawk College. She joins us now. Thank you for this. Really appreciate it. Hi there, Scott. Nice. I really appreciate you jumping in. Yeah, thank you. So as I say, this sounds very much kind of like a university idea, but it's not the same. And a big part of this seems to be that you are focusing on business as related to skilled trade occupations. Is this something that when you look at the the working world out there, there's a giant gap right here for this? You got it, Scott. We have built this program to um, address a major gap uh, for management and business skills for those involved in the trades. Um, so um, for graduates who uh, of any college diploma in trades who want to pursue a career in leadership or upper level uh, in their organization, this is um, the business administration degree for you. So you're training, just to be clear, you're training the future bosses rather than the future workers. Right, because we have so many, you know, Algonquin, Mohawk, and George Brown have tremendous alumni participation in the trades. And so with those trade skills, we want to top that up with business skills. So this is really an um, entry into a third year of a degree with advanced standing for all of those other courses they may have taken in the trades. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, a great way for us to build the business competency alongside the tra- trades competencies that were established previously. I'll tell you why I think, I mean, and you've had other people, I'm sure, tell you why, but why I think this is a good idea. And I've talked about it on the show before. I, I think we've made a mistake in our modern society by pushing so hard to say, you know, you have to go to university or somehow you've failed. Somehow you didn't do what you're supposed to do. We push really hard. You can make a lovely, very lucrative career in trades and we need, heaven knows we need people in the trades. It's, it's like, I don't know why we're always pushing or pushing so hard that you have to go into whatever, even if it's not something that's going to get you a job at the end, do something like this, that you're going to get work at the end, that your education is going to amount to something. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, you're right, Scott. The um, And there's a huge gap, um, huge shortage in the trades, uh, well-paid jobs going unfilled. And so this is about upskilling for the trades. Uh, lots of trades people want to own their own businesses. Uh, they want to progress in their organizations, and this is a way that they can have the best of both worlds, both the management uh, expertise as well as the underpinnings of their trades. Does it still require a bit of a sales job from colleges to kids that, and I'm not even kids, that's probably, but well, a lot, a lot of times it still is, that to say, you know what, we are a very viable option for you to do your post-secondary, you do not have to go to university. It's just as good or better to come to a college and do something that you're good at or that will lead to a job. Does it require a sales job these days? I think I think more and more so uh, young people are interested in the trades. I think there's been a lot of public um, relations work, um, especially in Ontario, to support the trades because of the skill gaps there and the lack of manpower or person power because there are a lot of women going into the trades as well. Um, I, I think the parents are more of the sales job, uh, quite frankly. Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, uh, the college, the college does uh, is well positioned uh, to help both parents and guidance counselors understand the value proposition. There are great jobs, um, life uh, long changing jobs available in the trades, and uh, there shouldn't be, especially with this new degree, any apprehension about taking uh, a trade than doing a top-up in this way, because it doesn't stop you from going on to doing your MBA, for example, if you wanted to, to do some graduate work. Yeah, I know. I think you're probably right about the parents, because, you know, heaven knows, we all want our kids to 
reach the highest level, but the highest level, you know, I'm always just thrown off by what's the highest level. To me, the highest level is, is it something you're good at? Is it something you like? Is it something you can get a job at the end that you can make a living at? That that to me is the highest level for whoever you are, whatever you're doing. Right. And something that you're passionate about too, right? The, that that needs to be um, sort of part of the equation. But as I said, uh, make a living. I mean, some of these trades, they're starting at $60,000, $80,000 yep. salaries. Yep. I mean, that's nothing uh, to, you know, to, um, to be embarrassed about. Uh, no, I, look, I, I would, if I could do anything with my hands and I can't, I am the least handy person that probably has walked the face of the earth, but you know, better to do that than to take a degree, degree in philosophy or something where you finish and you go, okay, now what? And, you know, at least have some, and I'm not bashing all the philosophy degree people, you're okay too. But, um, it, but it's like, I'd rather have something that I can get a job with and do something with what, what has been the responses? Has there been time for any kind of response to this idea yet? Well, it's still early yet, um, but we're seeing a very nice uh, early stream of applicants. Uh, people are pretty excited about this. This is a pretty unique program in Ontario, first of its kind, in so many ways. Um, the partnership between Algonquin, George Brown, and Mohawk really gives us geographic coverage for the province, so that's number one. We're sharing expertise across um, the three schools, so different uh, faculty from different schools uh, will be participating and supporting the students, and this is completely online, so the program is um, Mm. completely set up for those who are working, and that, uh, you know, they don't have to leave their job uh, to take, you know, a course or or two per semester uh, to... um, uh, to complete their degree. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Sylvie Lowndes, Dean of the McKeel School of Business at Mohawk. It's a great idea. I really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about it today. Thank you. You're very welcome. Have a great evening, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.